one of the most destructive forces in nature. Fire. This incredibly charred moorland is as close as we can get to what is a major incident here in the Scottish Highlands. Fort William last night, a town framed by fire. This is the extent of what nearly became the UK's largest ever wildfire. This is the Scottish Highlands near Canich. But when used correctly, an essential tool. Out-of-control wildfires have caused untold damage across the world and at home here in the UK. Are we doing enough to protect our uplands from the risk of fire? And in the process, are we damaging the climate with how we manage the land? This is the British Uplands Podcast with Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts. An exploration of change in one of the UK's most important landscapes. Grant to take down trees, plant to put hedges, plant to dig ditches, plants put on sheep, no grounds for sheep, sheep come off. Oh, the uplands, they're burning the peat. If you hear a simple argument put forward about how the uplands need to be managed, then that simple argument has to be wrong. Definitely going to cut that out of the podcast. (laughs) Earlier in the year, I travelled into the hills, following lines of smoke drifting down the glens. It's Muirburn season, where gamekeepers like Will Kerr are burning old heather to encourage new growth. But this practice is controversial, and to try and get to the bottom of why, I wanted to see it for myself. So... Well, I just walked up the hill from the bottom here. Thanks for making me walk all the way to the top. Lots of the hill is on fire today. Um, And I've been hearing from various people as to why this goes on. But just explain to me what kind of conditions you need to do this this rotational burning or muir burn. So ideally we need um, dry weather, uh, quite a light wind in order to um, light a, a line of fire and let the wind carry it across the hill. So it needs to be dry, um, but we also need a little bit of moisture in the ground so that it's not too dry going into the, the moss. Okay. Um, Could you, is that just so you burn the surface? Yep, so we just burn the vegetation on the top. And as you can see from these fires, if uh, you move the ash, the green moss is still there and uh, unharmed. And you've been driving a tractor around the hill, obviously. I've been watching, taking some photos and stuff. Um, you've had a, a young guy running up and down the hill lighting fires with like a gas canister and you've been driving around in the tractor. What, how, does the, how do they work together? So ideally, um, if it's quite fit, we would cut round. What do you mean by fit? So, so fit is uh, dry and quite oh, a good, so the good, right good wind. Yep. Okay. The right conditions. We would cut round um, the designated area that we want to burn. And then um, Andrew would then light it. And it, the theory is that it goes out at the swipes, at the cut, where we've cut it. Oh, so, it's like, so you're using the tractor to cut a fire break around the area? Yep, so okay. exactly, using the fire tractor to cut a fire break and then when it reaches there, because of the, the, the fuel loads being cut and thrown out to the side, it, it then goes out mm-hmm. normally. Uh, but if it's quite dry, it can sometimes um, burn across the cut, so you need to put two cuts around each fire. Okay. Um, and if it's not quite as um, fit or the conditions aren't quite as good, we would light a fire and then use the, the tractor to put out the edges once it's burned. Okay, so I saw you doing that do. a little bit, yep. just to like, put the fire out. 
And you're how 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 do you work it? Because I'm like driving around looking at and it, I can see that there's a plan. But how do you work out like where you're burning or how much uh, space is between them or how many fires? So ideally, we want um, like 20 yards wide, as, and as long as we can get them to go 100 yards. Um, but we we want to leave. Within 100 yards, we want to leave long heather for nesting for the grouse. Um, and then we also want um, some quite medium, sort of up to 5, 10 centimetres for good feeding. Um, and then short, short heather, um, which will then become the, the feeding for the, the years to come. How's, uh, have you managed to have many days this burning season that have had been the right conditions? Uh, I think we're on about day six now. Um, so, so when does six, the season start? Uh, Starts on the 1st of October, Okay. Uh, finishes the 15th of April. Um, so day six did, this year? Yep, day six this year. Okay. We didn't get any days in, in back end in October this year because it was uh, the conditions weren't right. Um, but this year it seems to be going well now. We've got you know we've got all of uh, March ahead of us, so hopefully we'll be able to get... Say, get saying that, there was some rain on my face as I was walking up Yeah, here. and I think there's snow due next week as well, so that's <laughs> probably not going to help the situation. Brilliant. Well, it's, uh, it's amazing to see, and uh, it's... I don't know, fire is kind of beautiful. <laughs> no, it's nice, very nice, isn't it? Um, as long as it don't get too big. Uh... Yeah, how, I mean, I guess you're like, you're watching that the whole time, Yeah, right? so watching it the whole time, but then because uh, we're, we're quite a well-managed mower, um, it's generally not going to go that far until it bumps into an old fire or real short heather, then it's quite easy to catch up with. But if, um, if it was left unburned and a fire was to get away it's so hard to put it out because you can't get near to the fire because it's so hot uh, because the fuel loads are that that big um, it gives us so much heat um, and that's when you get sort of wildfires so you're saying that even if uh, even if you didn't go and cut it eventually it like, like cut round it like you're doing now eventually there it, there would be because of the way you've been doing this for years and years and I can see all the patterns on the hill eventually it would probably hit something that would put itself out Mm, maybe maybe not put itself out but slow it down in, so that in order for us to get uh, get to it with either the tractor or a leaf blower okay. um, and then put it out but if we go into an area where there's quite a, um, a big bed of heather uh, quite a big fuel load it can be quite tricky if, if, if the fire gets too big to put it out But these practices are coming under pressure the Scottish Government is working to introduce stricter regulation, which would see Muirburn licensed to ensure people are following the rules. In the Scottish Parliament, MSPs heard evidence from a range of interest groups as they work towards a decision on future legislation. Here is Robbie Kernaham from Nature Scott, the Government's key advisor on the natural environment. The evidence base for the benefits or disbenefits of burning on peatlands, both from a carbon lens and a nature lens, is complicated. Uh, but I'm going to take a step back and just remind ourselves, in a nature and climate crisis, where 50% of our emissions are coming from land use, and between 15 and 20% of those are coming from peatlands, the existing position that nature's got to take is that burning on peatlands is not a good idea. It is already not uh, recommended through the peatland code. And this bill is providing, I think, additional safeguard to ensure that if we are going to burn on the peatland, which has to remain a tool in the toolbox, it's for very specific purposes in very specific places. And that is primarily to address the issue of wildfires getting out of hand and to protect some of our important carbon and biodiversity assets. The Muirburn Code does recommend against burning on peat. 
but by the definition of the code, it is only regarded as peat if it is more than 50 centimeters deep. We have already heard in a previous episode that regulation using peat depth has its own problems, a view shared by Bruce Farkerson from the Scottish Fire Service. The differentiation in peat depth is, from my perspective, irrelevant. Um, there is evidence, perhaps not um, entirely empirical, but very practical, that a managed cool burn, as the phrase it was used, a muir burn across the surface, does not penetrate any more than a centimetre below the surface of, of peatland. Um, but my concern is that if we um, restrict where muir burn can be carried out by bringing in a specified depth, and what we're doing is allowing a larger proportion of the fuel loading to be unmanaged. And the very thing we're trying to prevent, which is damage to the peatlands, will in fact be at higher risk because a wildfire absolutely will damage the peatland, whereas a muir burn, um, whilst does, I acknowledge does carry some risk, there is never a, a, a zero risk um, application of fire to, to vegetation. So it's a smaller risk, however, because it's managed, controlled, and the phrase that's um, current is cool, as opposed to a very, very hot and uncontrolled wildfire. The practice of muir burn, however, is is instrumental in reducing the risk of welfare because it manages the fuel load and it's the fuel load that's, that's the real problem when it comes to the intensity of fire that we're seeing. So climate change isn't having an impact in the number of fires we're having, but it is having an impact on the fire behaviour we're seeing and the intensity of fires. That combined with an increased fuel load or an unmanaged fuel load will, will result in a perfect storm for welfare. As is often the case, not everyone agrees. This was the response from Duncan Orr Ewing from the RSPB. The Nature Scott report that was published recently um, looking at Muirburn and Peatland said there was a lack of evidence from Scottish or UK studies that a reduction in fuel loads arising from Muirburn influences the occurrence of wildfire on moorland. And that's a direct quote from that report. I mean, I think, you know, we're talking about a climate crisis here. 80% of our peatland resource in Scotland is damaged and in 2019 it emitted 6.3 ton million tonnes of CO2, which is more than the energy supply and residential sectors. The Scottish Government is investing £250 million in restoring peatlands, uh, and there is evidence now, growing evidence, including from Saddleworth Moor, actually, in England, and our neighbouring reserve there at Dovestone, that actually restored habitats are more resilient to wildfire than non-restored habitats. We started this episode by visiting the site of an active muir burn, but I wanted to head away from the corridors of Holyrood and back to the hills and see what it looks like a few months after. Gamekeeper Alex Jenkins, who we heard from on the last show, explained to me what I was looking at. Uh, so now we're, we're, we're walking on um, some burn from this year. Yep. It's all charred and black. Yep. Still smells a little bit. Again, not too hot a fire. You can see it's not taken down any of the moss. No, no, no. Or anything like that. It's just whipped off the surface vegetation, which is quite an important consideration. A lot of bad press about folks saying we're burning peat and that sort of thing these days. Yeah. We're nowhere near the peat. I mean, you're. You dig down through that. So we're just digging down through a bit of the sphagnum. It goes a long way down. It's so wet. And it goes. Well, it smells earthy. Yeah. You'll have to go a long way. We are probably 
12 inches down. Oh, there you go. Just not quite. Not quite. I wouldn't barely. But that's, that's amazing, though. That just shows you. That, this that's is still a long way off turning to peat. But this is. Um, there you go. Oh, there okay. you go. Got just the start of the peat. So maybe a foot and a half down. Yeah. But what I got out in my hand here, which was two handfuls before you uh, got to the peat, is I can see that this is the sphagnum breaking down. Oh, yeah. You're wringing water out of that. You use fire in the landscape yeah. as a management tool. But there are a lot of reasons for that. And there's equally a lot of implications if that wasn't used. And I know that it's, I think you've got, have you got new rules and regulations coming in this year? or Yes, yeah. um, in, in terms of training. In terms um, of training. Anybody that conducts Muirburn going forward is going to have to be sort of accredited with the government, um, which I think is probably fairly sensible. Yeah, okay. To be fair. But there are some people who would like to see no fire management in the landscape yeah so how tell like why do you do it how does it fit into the landscape so well, the, the the main reason that we burn the hills is for regeneration um to regenerate the heather you know the, the heather's our it's the lifeblood of the hill it's it's, it's what the, the grouse feed off it's what the sheep feed off the mountain hares feed off the deer eat you know, it's it's what sustains everything up there. Um, it's our grass crop, is for want of a better word. Okay, you know, if yeah. you're feeding livestock, you know, it's, it's the same sort of thing. So in order to regenerate the heather, because as heather grows, um, the plant gets older. Um, it degenerate, we call it degenerate heather, we call it. it. It gets rank, straggly. There's not so much nutritional It's like very goodness. woody. And yeah, very woody sort of thick. There's not so much nutritional goodness in the tips. Whereas when it's quite young, it grows rapidly, readily. The the young growth on the on the tips is the highly nutritious bit of the plant. You know that's what gives the benefit to the deer and the grouse and the sheep and whatnot. Um, so once it gets to that sort of woody degenerate stage, we burn it off with a controlled controlled fire. Um, the fire just I mean burns it down to the stalks, and then the seed bed that's lying in the ground kicks off through partly through the fire in a lot of the cases if the fire is of a of a certain temperature regenerates the seed and just resets um but we don't just want to burn the whole hill you know um particularly for the ground nesting birds they need a mosaic of habitats so when we do burn we tend to burn in ideally 60 yard wide sort of strips a key point of the burning we do is it reduces the fuel load. This is something we see in Spain and Australia and California and stuff, mm -hmm. big big style now. It's not dissimilar in Scotland. It's obviously just on a slightly smaller scale. All that being said, there was a fire in the flow countries a few years ago, which can be seen from satellites in space. It was that big. Wow. Yeah. And the flow country is ringing wet, still burns. When, it, when, when conditions are right, it'll still burn. So because we're doing this muir burn every year and in a good year on this estate, for example, we could have 450 fires in a year. Um, that's obviously a bit weather dependent, but it fluctuates about that number. We're reducing the fuel load all the time. If it wasn't burnt, you would see a stage where the, the heather would all grow at a uniform rate on the hill to the point where you have just degenerate heather everywhere. Um, the fuel load's massive and that's when you get the wildfire that takes the entire hill. 
There are, however, voices calling for Muirburn to be stopped. Dr. Helen Armstrong was commissioned by Revive, a coalition for Grousemoor reform, to address the question of whether Muirburn on Grousemoors increases or decreases carbon emissions. You don't need to burn them. There is no reason to burn them. The only reason I think that you would burn them for for grouse would be if they had been drained and there'd been an increase in the heather cover. So then the heather will grow tall and leggy unless you burn it. But if it hasn't been drained, then it's functioning as a blanket bog. There's a high cover of sphagnum bog mosses. So the water table is high. There is no reason to burn it. But we have no monitoring currently of where burning actually takes place. So currently in Scotland, there is no monitoring of burning. But there is a best so, practice guidance, though. But we don't know who is following best practice and who isn't because no monitoring takes place. We do know that under best practice, you're not supposed to burn on um, blanket bogs, but we know on peatlands. But we know that about, four, well, the best information we have is that about 40% of burning for grouse takes place on uh, on peatlands. So we know that, that 40% of it isn't, isn't uh, being burnt according to best practice. And because no monitoring actually takes place, there's no assessment of from satellite images, for example, of where the burning is happening, whether it's on steep slopes at high altitude, next to rivers, whether what frequency the burning is taking place. Because we don't have that regular monitoring, we don't know how much burning is taking place that is following best practice and how much isn't. Anecdotally, uh, people say there's a lot that isn't, but that's anecdotal. Oh, and the other thing I suppose to say is that, of course, a lot of our, our dry heathland and bog SSSIs um, have been assessed as being in unfavourable condition. That's sites of special scientific interest. They've been assessed as being in unfavourable condition because of burning. So there is evidence out there that burning is not always taking place according to best practice. And this desire for more oversight is one of the reasons the Scottish government say they want to license Muirburn. Helen also argues that Muirburn is holding the uplands in an unnatural state. This, what we have now with Heather Moorland, with vast areas, large areas of burned Heather Moorland that's kept in this state of Heather Moorland because of the burning and in some cases the grazing as well. This, it's not the, the, the climax vegetation community and it's not um, what would be there if you didn't burn. You'd have woodland, you'd have scrub, you'd have a mosaic of different types of habitats of all different ages, of all different types, some open, some scrubby, some woody. And with all those different habitats, you'd have very high biodiversity. Where do we draw the line between being concerned about global biodiversity and localized biodiversity. If we're if we're in uh, if we are often focused on making sure that certain species exist in a global context. Well, there aren't any species that I think would would you know would would be that threatened to be honest. If we, um, if we or ecosystems, I should say. Island. Well, dry heather moorland, we can, we can protect some areas of dry heather moorland, but we don't need to have it all because we get so much more if we stop burning it and let it do what it wants to do, which is to turn into scrub, woodland, tall, uh, tall shrub communities, uh, a whole range of different habitats. As I said, many of them that, that 
disappeared, almost disappeared long ago from Scotland. We get so much more biodiversity back that we have to balance whether, because we have a de- large areas of a degraded ecosystem that is quite rare globally, whether we want to protect that. It, it seems a little um, perverse in a way to have to protect something because nobody else has degraded their land quite as much as we have. Clearly, science and opinion is divided on this topic. But one of the most recent and longest-running studies on Muirburn was carried out by Dr Andreas Heinemeyer, where he looked at the impact of three upland management methods. Sarah travelled to York University to meet him. There is a, a huge mountain pressure now on carbon and the carbon cycle, carbon storage, yeah. uh, carbon credits with the mm-hmm. carbon rush, everything is all coming back down to carbon. But you actually looked a little bit about how the mule burn and how the cutting and how leaving it, how all of those three things affected carbon storage in this yeah. area, didn't you? Yeah. Do we have some results you can show me? Well, I started off with a project being a German, coming to the UK, I mean, I've never shot a grouse in my life. I did not know that you would actually shoot grouse. So I applied for this grant from DEFRA, mm. maybe a bit naively, but I think also it's, it's somehow it's actually a blessing for me because I went in without any prejudice. You sound like I me just, coming into this study now. So I, I, I was just an ecologist yeah. and I just thought, oh, that's a really good question. Mm. And I loved the long-term aspect, so I went for that. But then soon I realised, whoa, what did I let myself in for? Because when I started off, I thought, surely burning. Yeah, well, you just lose the carbon. It must be an easy one to monitor and capture. And then I opened my eyes and realised, whoa, it's actually not that simple because when you do burn yes of course you have big emissions initially but not everything burns i, mm. I, was, I didn't really realize I, I, I didn't have a, a clue either yeah. particularly when you burn quite old heather so maybe 65 70 percent of the biomass is combusted yes. that's what other studies have uh, sort of seen and we observe that in our study as well. Lots yeah. is left standing as either sticks which are quite charred yeah. so they're very black and they t- seem to stand there so that carbon isn't lost. It's like uh, charcoal. It's, yeah not entirely but quite a lot of it is charcoal but also lots of the leaves and twigs they are really turned into proper charcoal yeah. and that can be five to ten percent so it's not minute when you add those sticks and the charcoal together it's it's a lot left over maybe sort of 20 percent is not combusted so it does sound like oh well lots has gone up in the first year but yeah. actually quite a lot a lot is left over and when you think think about and that's what sort of made me realize oh yes the long term is key because when you do the alternative the cutting yes yes you don't have the initial combustion the big loss but I mentioned the compost heap so you have when you cut and leave brush it's all there but Mm. one year after it's maybe 10% less because it's decomposed, it's rotted away. Yeah, Two years after, releases it 20%, anyway. yeah. maybe, and then 30%. And if you add that up over 10 or 20 years in our case, hmm, where will the balance be? Well, actually the 20% saved from the burning, or 10 to 20%, be better 
then letting it rot away and you might only end up with five to ten percent because long-term rotting away decomposition of brush you only get a few percent forming right. peat the rest decomposes so and that is so so what you're saying what is found. when you've burnt it the leftover the the charcoaly bits and the sort of broken bits they'll go into the peat it's pretty and stable. they get stored there absolutely and we find that and that's it literally it was an eye-opening moment yeah. when we took the peat core, so you go in with a big core, take out a peat and you see, like in our textbook, you can turn the pages just from the top down because each year a new layer of peat is formed. Through the burning process. It's not rotated, yeah, or just natural vegetation dying back, the leaf litter, like here the leaves fall down each year. So you build up peat and every 20 or so years you do a burn. Mm -hmm. That's what's been done over the past mm -hmm. few hundred years. And you see the burn layers coming and we measure that absolutely nearly every 20 years. And in between, it's just carbon accumulation because the plants grow, the roots put litter in, the leaves put litter in. What differences did you see in the regrowth between cut or burnt? Yeah, so our, I come back to that in a minute. You, 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 I, I think it might be good to look at this first yeah, and then we pick up on comparing the treatments. So we started off here with the uncut old heather, about 25 year old heather. It's taking up carbon, it's a carbon gain year after year. But then we do a management, burning the red line here. And you have that big carbon loss combustion, so it releases in the first year. But then the plants regrow mm. and they regrow quite rapidly. And you will see when you compare to the cut one, the, the mown one here, the green line, there is much less carbon loss because oh well, we've just mown it, the brush is there. Yeah. So you don't have that combustion loss, but you still have losses because decomposition is going on. And this is what I meant. It just year after year, it adds up. It decomposes yeah. for much longer. So you actually end up with a higher loss or a lower gain over 15 years. That's what our prediction shows and 20 years. Yes. So that's the scenario we only measured up to here, but this is what yeah. our measurement data show. Whereas the burnt one, it just recovered so quickly. Now, this relates to your last question. So mm. if we compare the plants, what we saw is that the uncut ones are getting older and older, the heather, and it becomes less and less efficient overall. And that's, oh well, human beings, we get older, we become less efficient. When you look at these trees, they are in their prime, they take up a lot of carbon, come in 50 years, they are much less efficient. Mm. So although you have huge biomass, it's actually very less efficient because you have You've a lot stopped of growing, oh, really. respiration, stopped, yeah. maintaining your body. You yeah. use a lot of sugars just for that. And that's what we see. So the heather becomes nutrient limited because it just doesn't get rejuvenated and less efficient. So it declines the carbon uptake. It's still a carbon gain, but it becomes less and less each year. Whereas the burnt ones, when you do burn, charcoal but you also add ash and right. ash is full of carbon but the nutrients exactly yeah. so you have the charcoal really the carbon and then the ash which yeah. oh, well, people love to put down because everybody knows it's nutrient rich so the charcoal is what's helping the charcoal so actually yeah. oh gosh that's so, so the opposite exactly so the nutrient fertilization really stimulated the regrowth and the uptake
intake capacity of the plants. And that's what we actually measured. So when we noticed this difference, we thought, oh, we better take some heather shoot samples and analyze them for the nutrient content and for all the key elements which are needed for green leaves to take up carbon via mm -hmm. photosynthesis, the process which fixes carbon, we noticed a massively increased nutrient content in the burned treatment. One of the few things there seems to be a consensus on in the scientific community is the importance of keeping our moorlands wet and restoring damage from the historic draining of the moors for agriculture. But Andreas doesn't believe that a hands-off approach is the right decision. So ideally, re-wet where you can re-wet, but loads of sites, they will be outside the really wet high rainfall area. So they will be inherently drier, even without drainage. Mm. They will be just drier. So those sites, to just walk away and say, oh well, it will look after itself, it will re-wet itself. There's no proof for that, that that will really protect those peatlands because even an intact peatland can get very dry during a summer drought. I mean, think about last year, 35 degrees we measured at all our peatland sites and for weeks it was very dry. So even in intact areas, the water table depth will go down, down to 30, 40, 50 centimeters. The peat surface will be dry enough to burn when the fire comes along. So it might be barbecue, it might be lightning, who God knows what, but then even a wet peatland could easily catch fire and burn. We've got a bit so. of a problem on our hands right now, exactly. haven't we? But I think just saying all will be well by re-wetting and walking away and looking the other way will most likely be the, the worst decision in history for peatlands. We need to really consider the options and all tools and options should be in the bag. So there might be areas where walking away will be absolutely fine, but loads of areas, I don't think it will be fine. From what you have heard, opinions differ greatly as to whether Muirburn is beneficial or harmful to our uplands. As with many of the issues we have discussed, the answer depends on what you want out of the landscape and whether you measure success on a short or long-term timescale. One thing is certain, as the climate warms, the risk of wildfire will likely increase and our ability to protect our landscape, especially our peatlands, will continue to be challenged. The choices that we make now will have lasting consequences. We are taking a two-week break before coming back with the last three episodes of this series. So join us again on September the 12th as we look at how wildlife shapes the management of our uplands. The British Upland series is presented by Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, co-produced and edited by David Shanks as part of the Into the Wilderness podcast, an MH Studios production.